0: All right, well, we're going to go ahead and get
1: started, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, as we continue to talk about um, the sexuality that you have given to us and and the way in which you wish us to uh, live out our lives in that manner in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, a blessing that you intend for all. Uh, We ask your blessing on our discussion today as we talk about some of the practical applications of the Sixth Commandment that many of us have probably experienced in one way or another in our lives personally or know somebody who has. Help us to speak with compassion but also faithfulness to your word so that we may be a blessing that you intend for there to be in their lives so that they may, like us, come to know you. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so last week, as per usual, you guys asked some great questions. So we only got about halfway through our sheets. Um, and so, we're going to be talking about some of the applications of the Sixth Commandment, uh, which I'm not going to assume we're going to get through. Um, because uh, we usually have some really great discussion and necessary discussions, especially about some of these topics. Um, they're very relevant to our day. There's a lot of very confusing knowledge out there that's being taught to everyone, but most especially to kids about sexuality and what is good and proper. And so, um, If you want to turn in your catechisms to page 98, that's where we're going to be starting. Um, And we're going to be starting with connections and applications. So just for your own benefit, if you got one of the catechisms when you're studying this, if you want to do anything on your own, each one of the sections for like the commandments or the parts of the creed, at the end there'll be a connections and applications section. And that really digs into many of the questions that you would assume needed to be asked about. So like, for example, the Sixth Commandment, this is where you're gonna find stuff about, well, what does the church of the Bible say about single people? What does the church of the Bible say about homosexuality? What does it say about transsexuality? Um, And what does it say about cohabitation? Because those are usually the questions that people ask in one way or another when you're going over the Sixth Commandment. So those are gonna be the questions we're gonna look at today. We got a little bit into the homosexuality question last week um, and so we won't spend as much time on that this week, uh, but we're going to look at some of these as well. All right, so question number 71 on page 98. What does the Bible affirm about people who are not married? Our identity, worth, or completeness as human beings is not determined by our marital status, but by our creator and redeemer, okay? Um, So this is probably written in response to, there are many people in my generation and maybe the generation above, who felt like the church always sort of treated them as less than because they didn't get married. So if they were 35 and single, they felt like the church didn't really minister to them. And would you say that in some cases they probably had a valid concern? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. Think about the typical programs in a church. If you're 35 and single and you have no children, there's usually not a lot offered there for you. And so it can lead you to think that well, maybe the church is really trying to push me into this marriage track because of, in order to feel like a full-fledged Christian, I need to get married. Right? Bible does not teach that. And so we, we have to be careful, too, practically speaking, in our churches that we don't create that impression for young adults because uh, who was somebody that wrote a lot of the New Testament that never got married? All right. right? So and he talks about the benefit of being single in the Christian context, is that you have more time to focus on serving God. Right? Um, he doesn't say one is better or worse than the other. Um, his, he gives his personal take on it, but he doesn't say that as a prescriptive thing, but just a descriptive thing for him. Okay. Um, but right out of the gate, we're going to be clear that because you're married and you have children does not mean that you're more valued by God. Okay? All right, letter A. God made us stewards of his creation, whether single or married. So we're going to read Genesis 1:27 to 28, uh, which is there in the, on the page for you, on page 98. Well, let's see. Ron, you
2: want to read that for us? Okay. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, And God blessed him. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth.
1: All right. So God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Right. So it doesn't equate marriage to being made in the image of God, right? You're made in the image of God from the get go. male and female, Okay. So that one's, that's talking about there.
2: So when God created Adam and then he said he needed a helper. Or something like that,
1: yes. And he created Eve. Yep.
2: So they weren't really married, per se, or is, or is that incorrect to say that?
1: No, we would say that they were married. They were married um, by God? Like through through the establishing yeah. of their relationship, we would say that that was like the in, instituting of, of the estate of marriage. Okay. Um but what was not good isn't specifically identified as like a sexual relationship. What was not good was that man was alone. In other words, uh, some people extrapolate this back to the image of God That, um, like it, in this verse itself actually look at, oh, it's like the verse before. God says to himself, let us make man in our own image. Okay, And so that's the Holy Trinity. And so Part of what we would say is we think that being made in the image of God includes we're relational beings, just like God is three in one, right? And so that's why it was described as not good that man was alone, right? And you'll notice at first, where does he look to find a helper? Right. All the other animals, right? He goes around and, and names the animals and, and is searching for a helper, right? And so it's it's a base more of a base level relationship. And, and then, of course, when Eve comes... It is. It is. It ends up becoming a marriage relationship. Yeah. It um, is a true faith-based marriage. It is a
2: threesome. You mm-hmm. got the husband, the wife, mm-hmm. and God. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you are when you're giving your marriage vows to one another, you're giving them in the presence of God um, as well. So He's included in that relationship. Oh yeah. Is that answer question? Okay. And the promise is not to your
2: uh, spouse at the altar. That
1: promise is to God. Well, it's to both, right? You're making a vow um, to them and to God, right? And and, and as a means of of proving that that's what you're going to actually do, because it's a commitment-based thing rather than a romantic inclination thing. Okay, letter B. God has given all good things to all Christians, whether single or married. Uh, Romans eight thirty-two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, right? So when God talks about his provision in Jesus, he never specifies that this is only for people who get married and have children, right? It's a blanket statement of gracious blessing. Now, some of this seems obvious to you probably, but this is important that we specifically say, because you never know when people are feeling like, because they're single, they're being sort of dismissed in a church. Because we, we as we have a tendency to think organizationally. So if you have a visitor come into your church, just to give you an example, and it's a, someone like me, right, single 31-year-old guy comes in and, well, not fully single anymore, but um, single 31-year-old guy, right, walk in, and you might be like, oh, cool, there's a young person here. But... That's pretty much the extent of the thought. What if it's like a family like the Blake's, right? Mom and dad and three kids, and you're just like jumping for joy, right? So that can create an impression that that is more valuable to you than the other person, right? So that's that's one of the reasons why we want to explicitly mention this, so that we're thankful for all of the people who are part of our body of Christ here at Central Church, and make sure that they understand and feel that way as well. All right, letter C. God calls unmarried persons to live in contentment as they trust in him and serve their neighbor. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about this. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And then later on in that same chapter, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Okay. So, Paul, and this is where we're always describing both of these states as a gift. Right. So, Paul was given the gift of celibacy, right? He wasn't somebody who was impassioned with lust. And so he lived a life, a single life. And some people, you maybe know someone like that. Some people are like that. Um, but that's a gift. We describe that from the scriptures as a gift. Because Paul, after Paul makes a lot of these exhortations, he says, But not everyone is as I am. Right? So, um, and then he goes on to say, If you are passionate for the opposite sex, then you should get married. And be able to carry that passion out in the way, Right. And it also is in tandem with what we just read, what Ron just read in, in Genesis, right? What is God's command for the human beings in creation to be fruitful and multiply? So don't read that and think that Paul is saying being married is bad. Right? He's highlighting like there's different spiritual benefits to both the states. Does that make sense?
2: But we don't know what Paul was like before he had his
0: conversation
2: with Jesus. Because <laughs> he was a very rich man, right, from a good family. Yeah. And so maybe his life was completely different than oh, Yeah. because he was killing people. Yeah, it's possible.
1: I mean, so there's never any indication in the scriptures, though, that he was ever, ever really interested in. Even prior to like while he was Saul prior to becoming Paul, he was still very full of zeal, just the wrong source for the wrong thing. And so he's always been described scripturally speaking as someone who's dedicated, you know, been called really to dedicate their life to to pursuing God. and there are some people like that. Of course
2: he he wrote almost the entire New Testament. So he's going to write, he,
1: you're not going to write things in that he doesn't want people to know. Right? <laughs> and and really like
2: all those, you know, little,
1: the seemly stories. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, the stuff that's going to be included is the stuff that God intended to be beneficial to us. So if it's not included, then we don't really need to know about it. Um, so speculation, that, like in general, <laughs> speculation is a lot of fun, uh, but it can also, like, don't get too crazy with it because you, know, you don't want to venture too far into territory that you're not really sure about. Okay, and then letter D, people will not be married in the age to come after Jesus returns. So in Matthew 22, Jesus says, for the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. So this was in, in response to, partially in response to the question about, that I think Rob brought up last week, where they were trying to trick Jesus by saying, well what if there was this woman who, her original husband died and her husband's brother marries her and she outlives him and his there's other brother marries her, and he outlives her, and he all this stuff. And so he said, when he gets to heaven, who, who is going to be her husband? Right. Um, and so Jesus, of course, gives a much more detailed explanation of that specific question, but in summation, he says this statement about heaven.
2: So this is after Jesus comes back and we're all raised. Yes. In the resurrection. So I don't know if I want to get into this right now, but first, no, you die yeah <laughs>
1: well there were there were like three people that specifically asked a question about at the beginning when I was asking for like what's something you want to make sure we cover in the class was how exactly does it work with do I die and then I wait you know sleeping essentially until the day of judgment or am I like what about what Jesus says to the, the people on the cross? truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise and all that. So we will get into that in detail when we get to the creed. Okay. So if so you're not on that, but um, that'll take us way too far afield and we won't even get to the next question if we start talking about it today. No, about the rapture. No, Pete. Okay. Any, any other questions about kind of the, the subject of single versus married in the way that we are to approach those two states.
2: I know it's different, when you talk because Paul's talking about in the church while things could be, but there's a the life outside the church. And I do think society views single people different than married people. Now, haven't been both ways. I mean, single
0: and, <laughs> 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 been single, married I'm so and single. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, This is
2: where I get it all (laughs) I'm I'm following you around Everybody else Everybody else is like mice So uh, I I noticed a difference Seriously Yeah. When I was single it didn't matter Because I was single then I got married And that was great And then I'm single again And I can notice being with married couples How It's awkward sometimes Sure. Yeah. It mean, really is, and you just walk in the store, and you're a single man shopping or something, and people, especially ones with married with kids, oh, good and all that. has got come near a little kid. Right. right. Yeah. And so
1: the um, Ron brought up the point that there's, you know, Paul's talking about in the context of the church, but there's there's out in the world, there seems to be a difference between the way people perceive you as a married person versus uh, a single person. Um, <clears throat> And I, I think that's what we're trying to address with this teaching in the church, right, is that the Bible does not make such worth distinctions. Because I totally get what you're saying. Like, I moved to Ohio as a single guy who was also a pastor. So pastors, in, in many people's minds, are not, like, that's not a positive. It's an off-putting thing. And not only that, but I'm single, and I, and I live in my own house, so it, it's a little extra difficult to get to know your neighbors in a non-creepy way. Seriously, because most people have that impression of you. Like, if I walked up to your house like this, and I was your neighbor, like, most people are going to, like, it's not going to be like a normal interaction. They're going to be, like, guarded right from the get-go, right? Um, and, depend- and depending on their personal experience, it may be justified, right? But I, like, until I got a dog, I think it was very difficult for me to strike up Conversations with random people in my neighborhood, without without what you're saying, without feeling like people are sort of like, "Who's this guy? Why is he alone?" It's like, because I, I don't know, I live by myself. Cut me some slack, you know. Um, but there is that different in, difference in perception. So we're not we're not saying that that doesn't exist. But we're saying, scripturally speaking, it has no basis, right? Um, and so we need to resist the desire to make those distinctions. Right. So we we want to create a space here where a single person walks in, like people aren't grabbing their kids and holding them closer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of or even just sort of they're like don't know how to approach them and it's awkward because well I have kids so I've got a bunch of kids stuff to talk about what do I talk about with a single twenty seven year old right um, and then they'll immediately feel like like even and they, they may even understand to a certain degree they might be like oh well I get that they don't know what to say to me but. The fact that nobody's even trying to makes me not want to come back. Right? Th- those are the sorts of interactions that, that either cause people to return or not return. Right? Um, the, the other aspect of that that I wanted to highlight before we moved on was, most people then, they hear that from somebody they care about, and then they decide that it's never good to encourage somebody to get married. That's also wrong. Okay? Um, and if it's somebody that you care about that's responded that way, Dig a little bit. Find out why they're upset that you're asking them that. Because maybe they have a false understanding of why you're saying that. Maybe you're just saying, I just want you to be happy. That's the only reason I'm saying it. And they may think that you're trying to push them into something because you feel like they're incomplete or unhappy now. And they may be trying to say, I'm happy with my life right now. Right? Um, so it's important to not go too far either direction. Sometimes the response goes too far as well, where people then try to feel like it's wrong to encourage people to marry. It's not wrong to do that; that may be God's plan for them. But always talking about in the context of, you know, if it's God's will that you don't get married, that's totally fine, and I'm perfectly happy about that. But if it is His will to get married, then it's also fine, and you shouldn't resist that either. And so resisting in either direction would be would be incorrect. Not only for the person encouraging, but also. The person question. That makes sense. Okay. Anything else before going to question seventy-two on page ninety-nine? All right, we're on the middle of page ninety-nine of the catechism. Question seventy-two: What is the Christian view of living together apart from marriage? So I have done five weddings. How many of those weddings do you think the people getting married were living together when I started speaking with them? All of them.
0: Really?
1: All of them. And most of them, I had two that were sort of, they were fringe as far as their their faith goes. Their their families were very faithful, and they were sort of faithful. But the other three grew up in the church, still active in the church, but living together. So this is a very common thing. And maybe some of you have experienced this within the context of your own family um, or among friends. I had friends that I grew up with that started living together with girlfriends and boyfriends and things like that. Okay. God's will for our lives is violated in several ways when a man and woman live together in a sexual relationship without being married. Cohabitation fails to honor honor God's gift of marriage. Okay, so, and I'll just start by saying in pairing with the doctrine of original sin and the understanding of the temptation, in particular, of sexual sin, the assumption that I will make if somebody comes to me and they say they're living together is that they're sexually active. Okay? Because it's really just sort of, if you don't want to be sexually active, it's it's at base level super unwise to live together, um, but it's also unrealistic at, after a certain point. Okay? Okay. Um, say it can happen but I don't know why if that was your goal you would put yourself in such a situation because okay the assumption is cohabitation means that you're sexually active yeah
3: Perfect. okay so okay this is Kristen I have a uh hypothetical okay. um 85 year old couple um, wants to live together um and Christian um, but for legal and estate planning reasons, um, they maybe it's a second marriage um, or a second. They're widowed or um, had um, a divorce, and so they're a couple, Christian couple, eighty-five years old, wants to live together but not get married for legal tax reasons. Sure. Um, you know, what do you think about that?
1: So I would say there's, so we've gotten so used to the official act of the church of marriage being so intimately
3: tied with the legal. Right. Because the, there's a there's a difference between legal marriage, and and a, a church marriage. Yes.
1: So in that situation, I would encourage a church marriage because I think. What matters, even even with the extenuating tax circumstances, and I don't know exactly...
3: And estate planning with kids from prior marriages, you know. Um,
1: and I don't know exactly the, the legal detail as far as if they would be forced into a legal recognition if they had a church marriage. Um, but They're, I would encourage, and maybe some more of our, our legal minds here can answer that question, but I would say... With my current level of knowledge about that situation, I would encourage a church marriage. And there really is no need to make it legally binding in an earthly sense. Well. In order for them to not be sinning against God.
3: I mean, I I think to to have a church marriage, you need a uh, a marriage certificate that you get through the government. So it's legal.
1: Well, if you make it that way
2: wasn't there at one point in time kind of a a right that the church had where essentially people who were I don't know like it was it was it was kind of like a lifelong commitment type right it wasn't it wasn't necessarily marriage but it was sort of um I remember reading about this in terms of like uh, uh, of people that didn't have spouses but essentially the same sort of Familial structure to take care, you know, to promise to take care of each other. I yeah, mean it, like the
1: like, if you do a church wedding in the standard way that you would normally, it does have to involve the legal side of things with the marriage certificate and all of that. But that's all for the benefit of the state, right? Um, so, I mean, I could, I haven't thought about this in great detail, like this particular example. Um, so I'd have to do that before acting on it, but I, Sorry. I would think that there wouldn't be any reason why I couldn't do a wedding like that without those things. If the, if the goal is not to change the legal marital status, but to, to, to put them in the state of holy marriage. because We've tied those together in our country, but I mean, there are currently many countries around the world where if you get married in a Christian church, you're not going to be legally necessarily recognized. Yeah.
2: Where in the Bible does it say that you're not married unless you have a church
1: marriage? So that's a good question. So the question was, where does it say in the Bible that you're not legally, you're not married unless you have a church marriage?
2: For example, the, Jesus in his encounter with the, with the woman at the well suggested that she had had many husbands, right? Yeah. But I don't suspect that she had had many marriages. Sure. You know what I mean, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think that, that was the implication. Sure. She was living in
1: sin, right? Right. So, so um so I guess the first question I would ask in response to that question would be what what do you mean by church marriage? So some people think church marriage is just in a church building, but you can have a non-church marriage in a church building. Many people do. Well, um,
2: so for example, couples that are living together. Yeah. And or in a committed relationship, is that not marriage as, as that estate is recognized in, in, in the
1: Christian faith? We would say no.
2: Okay. Why is that? That's because,
1: so you even use the phrase, they're in a loving, committed relationship. We would say they're not in a committed relationship. Yeah. They haven't made that commitment to each other. Cool. And so the, the, the church part of that commitment is, as Rob was pointing out before, and it isn't just a, like a, a commitment agreement between you and your, your your potential spouse. It is between you, your spouse, and God. Right? And where, where
2: in the Bible does it say?
1: I'm getting there. I'm just okay. establishing, yeah. you know, what, what we would say, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so the Bible, where does the Bible say that a pastor ought to baptize your children? You. It doesn't, right? So why do we do that? Tradition, okay, that's
4: one
1: argument.
4: That's what we've always done, yeah.
1: Okay, so to uh, maintain the proper integrity and purpose of the the, the right. Uh, so typically, that would be one of our arguments for, yeah, but we would usually express it in terms of like, for the sake of good order. Right, so God instituted the church. Like, could somebody conceivably be saved without being formally a part of like a earthly church?
0: Of course, right.
1: Would we ever encourage them to live a life apart from the church? No. Why? For the sake of good order right? and for their well-being, because God has instituted these sorts of things. It's the same reason we we do the sacraments the way we do, right? Is God's promise to be present in, in a particular place for a particular purpose, and our job as the church, as a steward of those gifts, those blessings, is to try and maintain them as faithfully as possible. For so, in the same way that if if baptisms, like, if, if a dad does an emergency baptism for a baby that has been born and they're not sure how long he's going to live, is that a valid baptism? Well,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Of course it is, right? Um, So why do people have pastors do that? Mostly, it's so that over a long period of time, right? We usually think of these terms in in terms of single lifetime, you know, just like you know, a matter of seven or eight decades. But the church has to think about this stuff for thousands of years, right? So if you start diluting out those practices to be done in any sort of manner or context, you know, you have fifteen hundred years in the future, and it's probably going to be. Like, have you ever played uh, Telephone Pictionary? The game where you get a little note cards, and somebody writes a phrase, and then everybody passes theirs to the left, and then the next person has to try and draw a picture of the phrase. And then they they pass to the left again, and the following person looks at the picture and has to write the phrase again. And by the time you get your card back, you maybe drew a picture of Taco Bell, and the last phrase written about it is like a platypus in a paddle boat, right? Like it's a totally different thing. So the for the sake of good order in the church argument is to avoid that reality over a long period of time. So it doesn't totally discount the idea that maybe the particular couple or person you're talking about in question really does understand the purpose of the right. But it's still, from our perspective, not a good idea to do it in that manner unless absolutely necessary, in order to preserve that over a long period of time. Because it's also these are all public things, too, right? So they're bearing witness to the, what God has done. Yeah, Pete.
4: Also, in, in, in piggybacking on what you said, somebody can graduate from seminary, but not people. Like and the ordination of, of a pastor is basically the community at large and the, the um, the denomination at large, saying we have full faith and trust in this person. It's it's like having a major certificate saying approved for doing these things.
1: Right, right. So he was making the point that you can graduate from the seminary but not be ordained. What an ordination does is it tells the church at large that you're going to serve, that this person is knowledgeable and trustworthy to carry out the office to which you call them, right? And really that's the same in most professions, right? You're not going to let somebody be your lawyer unless they're legally qualified to email or you're not going to let somebody operate on you unless they're an actual doctor like if i should have been like well i got an education at the seminary so i'm going to perform heart surgery on you like uh you're a crazy person please step away right um and so that's where where that comes from like if you're in a you know desert island situation and there's no institutional church around and you fall in love with another person on a desert island and you you know do a faithful wedding ceremony in the sense that you're you're making your vows not just to each other but to God to to love in an unconditional fashion. Then I would say that that's probably a, a legit marriage from a Christian perspective. The
2: chimpanzees <laughs>
1: <laughs> your wedding party will be chimpanzees and elephants and all that stuff. Yeah, so because um, that that really is a bugaboo for a lot of people, right? They uh, and it's usually in response to. Like, why, why do there have to be so many rules about it? Um, and I usually respond to those sorts of questions with questions. Like, you're making a lifelong commitment to somebody, why, why are these tiny rules a big deal, Like You're entering into a relationship where the name of the game is denial of self, and yet you want to start it off by making a bunch of selfish demands to gratify your own wants and needs, right? And so just helping people see that this is actually meant to be a blessing, the way we do this for you and for those who bear witness to what's going to, going to happen. I'm not meant to put extra barriers in place. Because mm-hmm. um, you can make the same thing about, uh, like I always told my female friends when I was growing up, when I got to a certain age and they started getting engaged, and I was told them it should be a big red flag to you if the guy you want to get married to does not want to talk to somebody about your marriage prior to getting married. Because whatever's going to come up in that conversation, is gonna come up in your marriage. So it's not gonna bring up anything new. It's not it's gonna create new problems, right? Um, and so why do you wanna encourage couples to do that? Well, it's not to put another rule and another barrier in place prior to their marriage. And so that they go in with both eyes open with a proper understanding of what marriage is for their benefit. So like when I do premaritals, if you're living together, I ask you if possible to not, during the duration of the time we're meeting, and if for financial reasons, because in some cases people have put in together in a way that there really is no option for them to live somewhere else financially, then I ask them to sexually separate during that time. Because if you're going to be doing this in the way God intends, we gotta go by his way, right? But I start my whole, all my sessions by establishing that everything I'm gonna talk with you about Everything that I'm going to bring up with you and ask of you is for your benefit, because I want you to have a great marriage. I want you to have a long marriage, and usually they agree with me and that that's what they want as well. And so I say that everything we're going to talk about is to that end, right? And so I try to get people to see that, the, like the order and rule of the church when it comes to things like weddings, is for that. It's not make. It's not meant to just. Make things unnecessarily complicated. It's not to put up barriers, it's actually to increase the potential blessing of what God intends us to be for you, which is a blessing. Yeah, Mike. Does the church view Muslims or Hindus who are married as married? So the question was, does the church view Muslims and Hindus as married? Are they uh, as actually married?
2: Yeah, they're not if they're married, quote unquote, I mean legally, of course, they're married. But outside the Christian faith, sure, are they viewed as married people or single? I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the church's view on that?
1: So I would say that that would depend on the particulars of the situation in some ways, but largely the church would consider them married. So we, we have an example from scripture where um, I can't remember which Pauline letter it is, but he talks about like you should, that it's not grounds for divorcing your husband or wife, if you become a Christian, they're not. Right. So there's an understanding there that the the prior relationship that's been established outside of the faith is honored. Okay. Um, but for example like we have such a, a particular view of what it means to be married. So if it's like radically different than that, then you wouldn't necessarily say that like you you're not married, you have to get a divorce or you have to separate. But we need to, like as part of your like conversion to faith, we need to talk about your relationship with your significant other and help bring it in line
4: with God's picture of what that's meant to be.
1: And that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to do another marriage ceremony, but I would want to meet with them and present to them God's intention and picture of marriage, for once again, for their benefit and blessing going forward. I'm
2: not sure I understand that. And we talked about homosexuality, right? Yeah. And how the church does not view gay marriage, right? As yeah. Marriage. But I don't understand what the difference between two Muslims who are not Christian at all. Sure. Getting married. What's the difference between them getting married and two
1: men getting married? Okay, so uh, the question what was, what's what the, the difference the, between the... The, like two not unbelieving Muslims getting married and, and two men getting married in a gay relationship. Um, so I well, sort of misunderstood your initial question yeah. as like if somebody was coming into the church, would their marriage be recognized even if it occurred outside of the church? How do we view them? I mean, so, they, so if we're just saying, how do we view them? Yeah. Um, so it's important to note one, that marriage is not viewed as like a salvific thing. Right, so it's not a sacrament for us, um, which we established earlier. We talked about civil versus marriage. So we don't really particularly have a lot at play for unbelievers' marriages, right? Because if they're unbelievers and they got married and they're not following God's law, it sort of makes sense, right? They don't believe. It, um, it is if it's just an outsider perspective, like we're here in the church and we're looking out it would be the same for homosexual marriage, right? It would be, I mean, there are non-believers, so it makes sense to me that they don't follow God's law or his picture for marriage. I personally wouldn't call that marriage, but legally, if it's called marriage, it doesn't really matter to the church, I mean, you can make arguments from natural law that it's bad for society over a long period of time and all that stuff, but from a theological perspective of the church, it isn't our prerogative to go around saying you're disgusting and horrible and evil and your marriage is blah. because we would just say personally, we don't call it marriage because that's not what God says marriage is. we would say it's the same for the unbelievers relationship as well. Although we don't typically say that because it's not not usually the primary connection to why you're even thinking about it. So that's some of the difference with the homosexual union is that's like an obvious primary connection as to why you're even thinking about it in the first place is the sexual orientation piece. But in the same way that if they were coming into the church, they would have to cease that relationship. It would be uh, like in their case, it would be because the basis of their togetherness in that context is wrong from Scripture. So we would say if the homosexual couple wants to become Christian, they would have to legally divorce. And we would say that it's not really like spiritually a divorce because it wasn't a marriage to begin with. And then they would have to turn away from that lifestyle. Right? In the case of the uh, Muslim couple, there may be other aspects of their marriage that they do need to turn away from for the exact same reason. For them, maybe it's not a sexual thing. Maybe they have the same understanding of that as we do from Scripture. But maybe it's the role of the husband and wife that's, that's wrong. And then as part of their coming into the Christian faith, their understanding of marriage has to shift and it would go away from those things. And they would be asked to turn away from that understanding. So it is, principally, it the same. Yeah. It's just less obvious in one case than the other, typically, And less, people do get really hung up on the sexual orientation stuff in a way that they don't get hung up on the other stuff. So it, it gets magnified, like, societally speaking, but theologically, the principle is the same thing. Great question.
2: If you take into account ceremonial law, civil law versus moral law, it's easier to
1: to work it.
0: Yeah, right.
1: That we're, so the the point was made that if you take into account, if you remember we talked a while back about the difference between civil law, ceremonial law and moral law, it's easier to kind of parse some of these things out.
4: Uh, Pete and then Trish. Picking back off uh, Mike's question, so let's say we had a, a non-Christian married couple who came to the Lord and decided to, to start coming to church. Are you saying we would not recommend that they recommit their vows in front of God in our church?
1: It depends. So th- this is where like I wouldn't say that there's a hard rule that applies in all cases. Okay. You know, because you could have a couple that is aware of those things, and when they became Christian, one of the things they thought was, well, my marriage is one of my primary human relationships, and I'm sure the Bible has something to say about that. Let's learn about that. And then they may come in already wanting to move in that direction. And then they may say, and, and this, uh, this could easily happen come in and say, Pastor, we're new to Christianity. We've been married for 15 years. Neither of us were Christian before. We'd love to chat with you about what, what does it mean to be in a Christian relationship on the topics of marriage. And I'd be happy to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'd have to do something formal. And once again, I would say it's all for their benefit. So if I have a couple, let's say, that wants to do a sort of renewal of their vows in the context of their, their newfound Christian faith, I would not dissuade them from this. Right. I would I would say that you're not really like getting a new marriage here, but you're you're refocusing your relationship on as God intended it to be. Right. Uh, and that would probably in most cases I would say that's probably going to be a private thing between them. It might just be them and me. It might be them and some of their children or their close, close relatives and that sort of thing. But, yeah, good question. Uh, Trish?
0: Well, getting back to this couple, Kristen talked about, say, 85-year-old couple. Why can't they, if they can do this on a desert island between two people and God, why can't these two people do it? Well, because they're
1: not on a desert island.
0: Well, I know. So,
1: the purpose of the desert island hypothetical is you're providing a space where they literally have no other option. In this case, they have plenty of other options. And so uh, in the case that that Kristen brought up, which is is one I've been asked about before, you do have like valid concerns, but you should still exercise your options and seek out the options available to you in order to, like if you're gonna have a sexual relationship, it's in your best interest far more Best interest for you by the way than how much money your children get is should I be living in an unrepentant manner near the time of my death? Right. I'm far I'm much more concerned about something like that than I am about the ins and outs of the legal drama regarding wills and other things like that. Well
0: I, I, I agree with that, but I mean couldn't there be some way to have like a blessing ceremony or something that these people really would Definitely make this commitment in front of God and to God and with God, except for these legal issues. They
1: can't get around. I mean, that's sort of what my answer was: um, that yeah. you would do that you would do a like a church recognized ceremony that's not necessarily legally binding, because like when uh, marriages were happening throughout different times in the Christian church, they weren't necessarily also recognized by the country they were currently in. And that's still true in many places today.
2: Can you have the reverse, so let's say in the Christian scenario, and this happens, I, I've been asked more yeah. yeah. times in my last five years about couples seeking to get divorced for financial purposes, right? Oh they, they are still in a committed relationship. Oh, interesting. Typically, right, when people Christian a Christian couple would get divorced, at least as it relates to the Lutheran church, and maybe I'm not familiar with it, they're considered divorced for all purposes, not just legally. Yeah. So can you get divorced legally, but remain married in the eyes of the church? Wow. Oh. <laughs> I mean, so I would say that
1: like Technically, that could be possible, right? So because it
2: does, I and mean, it it really happens. I mean, sure. Yeah. No, I,
1: I can totally see yeah. where that would occur. So I think this would once again go back to the messy nature of, for the sake of good order, and not only mm-hmm. like our order, but I'm talking about like for future generations. Um, that is quite confusing for people who hear about it, right? So it um, would be helpful for me to know. Because, well, yeah. You
2: mean, know, I, I you know, know I, would, I would say I don't not have faith conversations with people that I know so if they're Christian, right? I, I'm, I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna preach to them. But if, if that's part of the conversation that they welcome, I'll certainly engage in that, right? You know, with them. If it, it would be a comfort to them if I could say, you know, you can get the legally, but under the in the eyes of the church, you'll still be considered married. But that might be a real comfort to them. I just I never thought about it that way. But sure. We'll see so why? I, I
1: don't understand the question. Why? Why would somebody? There, there's some. It sounds like a financial loophole. I mean, is this like moving your assets to the Cayman
4: Islands? Uh, I mean, that is it a broader reason, ethical what, question about what sense we're, that we're doing? That
2: right. sense. Well, it, it's because it typically happens when, it, for financial purposes in elderly couples because there's a filial support statute in Pennsylvania that requires spouses to support one another and if one spouse needs very expensive care Mm -hmm. right? It Mm -hmm. can be financially devastating on the spouse that is living in the community right? So I'll tell you in particular it happened with one spouse who was a physician, husband was too, but he was a spendthrift and he He was perhaps having some mental issues, but he was spending all of his money. And he was going to be needing care at some point along the way. And in order to qualify for certain government benefits, you can only have so many resources. You have to spend them down. And she did not want to get stuck in that spend down situation. Mm -hmm. And this is not unusual. This is not unusual. Um, And you you have it for social security (laughs) retirement planning. And lots of different that people are becoming more aware of, right? And they're making these financial decisions. So, so
0: it's
1: interesting. I would say yeah. like in the general the general issue at play with an example like that would be um, you're talking <clears throat> like we're talking about the 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 life of unrepentance or repentant faith you're talking about things far beyond financial hardship and even earthly death, So at base level, that has to be a primary concern in these conversations where, you know, is is this decision going to have a much deeper spiritual impact than any future possible financial problems that may occur, right? And if the answer to that is yes, then it should not be done, right? And maybe not even just for you, but maybe if it's going to cause some serious spiritual harm for your children, that that they're going to be very, you know, this this would get into the territory where Paul's talking about eating food sacrificed to idols, that for the sake of not causing a stumbling block in the faith for for other believers, that's reason enough not to do whatever you're asking them to do. I I think the church has allowed
2: legal marriage and Christian marriage to be so co-mingled. In fact, they've advocated for that yeah. in fighting against certain types of marriage. That, that They've created, they've given up, to some extent, ownership yes. Right. of marriage. And now, with all of these other things happening, the church is, I think, going to have to deal with the implications of that. Because right. most people would not say, if I get divorced in downtown in the Court of Common Pleas, that I can still be Mary, right? Right. And right, it might cause spiritual damage, but only because the church has allowed this commingling belief to persist. Sure, but, but
1: that's the exact same Assuming problem that Paul has as well, yeah. right, is it, it, there isn't actually anything wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols, right, so that isn't, the, that isn't the thing in question, it is whether or not it's correct or not, it's causing spiritual harm for someone else, right, and so you know, you could say maybe over time you can convince that person that it isn't, and then you would be free to do whatever you're asking about. But I think partly because of that co-mingling, which whether, once again, whether it's right or not, I would would tend to agree with you that I think the church has given up its ownership of of the institution of marriage in pursuit of that legal union um, with the state. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, Some are good, you know, some are better than others. that the question still is a is ultimately a spiritual one, right? So like with Kristen's example, with your example, it would still be like your spiritual state of being and your spouse's is a far more concern in the context of marriage because now you're not talking about marriage just in a legal sense, but in a total sense, right? Um, now, it's hard to answer that question in a vacuum because there's so many different, yeah, different circumstances, cool. but- a, It's an interesting- come on. It is, it is an interesting uh, i have to think about that some more. Good question. yeah. After so I met a friend
2: of an elderly couple and uh, they moved in,
3: they uh, bought a house and together, but they weren't married. And she just had a senior you know, thought but she didn't want to marry because she had heart
2: problems and a lot of medical problems. And they, when they got the heart they put it on his name and she didn't want to marry because he'd be responsible for all her medical bills. And so you know first you don't know which way to think it you know she passed away and she's gone but he ended up taking care of her and she said numerous times if it wasn't for him she'd be in a nursing home and sure. he took care of her five, six years before she passed and it was really... What a so the, these,
1: these examples and questions are all kind of coming up along the same lines and I have to, yeah. I will, I'll have to do some research and talk to a few people because I don't know the exact right answer off of that, given every circumstance, and I do want to get on to another topic, um, so I'll come back to you when we bring this up again, um, which may be next week or so, um, because the other, the other thing that we gotta talk about is a, another can of worms, um, and that is uh, tr- like transsexuality. So, we talked about homosexuality quite a bit last week, and I think we kind of addressed all the major concerns there. But obviously, that doesn't make it easy, of course, um, if somebody that you know and love is dealing with these sorts of things. Um, but transsexuality has been a big thing in the last couple of months, societally speaking, right? How many of you are familiar with the Equality Act? So uh, the Equality Act, I would say, is misnamed. Um, It is a bill that just got passed in the House and is, I think, still awaiting to be passed in the Senate, right? Um, And essentially what that bill would do is it would um, label sex discrimination or or gender orientation discrimination, sorry, um, on the same level as race and sex discrimination. So that means that like if I would refuse to marry a female and then a transsexual male, or yeah, so a female who thinks she's male
4: to another female,
1: that I could be legally penalized for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I don't think it's going to play out exactly that way, because there are there are too many people that 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 would affect, but it could, right? Yeah. Um, and so. All the, the drama, the particular situation aside, it is, it would behoove us to talk about what exactly the Bible says about this transsexuality. And, and really, the deeper questions are um, are sex and gender malleable or not? And what does the scripture say about that? So, we're going to turn to pages 102 um, and we're going to talk about question number 77 at the bottom of page 102 going into 103. What is the Christian perspective on persons who are confused about their sexual identity? So, and by the way, this, is, this was something, I don't know when exactly it was changed, probably early 2000s, um, that was in the, uh, what do they call that, the DM? DSV. DSV, um, <laughs> where uh, gender, it's called gender dysphoria now, I think it was gender identity disorder before, it was a, a real, It's a real thing. Like people genuinely go through this and it's been well documented. It's been around for much longer than we've been talking about it nationally. Um, but there are, there are signs that it's been increased artificially. And there's a lot of argumentation going back and forth about that. But during adolescence, most people come to realize a growing interest and attraction toward the opposite sex, a desire and attraction that God intended when he created us male and female and established marriage between man and woman. Christians realize that the desire and attraction for the opposite sex is the God-given basis for marriage, for the conception and birth of children, and for the future of earthly human life. Some persons, however, may discover that they are attracted to individuals of the same sex. Others may feel uncomfortable with the sex they were born with and wish they were or believe they are the opposite sex with the wrong body. Such desires result from our fallen nature and are contrary to the will of God. Therefore, we should. Okay, so before we get into the letter answers there, there's something that you have to assume about your creatureliness to think some of these thoughts that the Bible rejects. At base level, you have to think that you, when you think of you in an existential sense, in other words, your being is separate from your body. Okay? So in other words, your body is just sort of like this placeholder in in the created universe for what is you. It's not actually you. Does that make sense? It's a little bit confusing. Um, So like, can you describe an apple to me without naming any of its attributes? Right? So the, the argument here is that there's some underlying substance apart from the fact that it's green or red and that it tastes sweet or it smells a certain way or it feels a certain way. Right? And so, in order to really get into depth on what you would, the mind space you're in when really <coughs> you're thinking about transsexuality, is that the being that is you is not tied to your body.
2: Like you're what you're saying is that
1: maybe the opposite,
2: what you're thinking. Is a product of the chemistry that's going on in your physical self, right? Because they're tied,
1: it's all tied together. Well, so when you start getting into the particulars of brain science, for us, it becomes obvious that that isn't true. Mm -hmm. But in order to say that I'm a female trapped in a male's body or a male trapped in a female's body, I have to think that the thing that I'm referring to as me is not related to my body. Mm -hmm. Because I'm taking what is one in our mind and making it two things. I'm making it me as a as a living thing and my body. And that comes historically from Greek philosophy, where you have a dualism of matter and spirit. Right? And when you anytime you separate matter and spirit out, what what do you think is the more important one? Spirit, right? Um, so when you talk about the human body, if somebody is <coughs> in matter and spirit dualism the body is just like a housing for the spirit. So when you die, what happens? Your spirit leaves your body, right? That's where that thought comes from.
0: Okay?
1: The scriptures don't really talk about it that way. I mean, The scripture refers to having a soul. So it does refer to that, but it never divorces that soul's identity from your actual created body. And it's actually quite specific in Revelation when it talks about... God coming and making all things new, that those are physical things, a new heavens and a new earth. right And that you're going to be given a new heavenly body. So we're not going to be wisps of spirit cloud floating around with a bunch of little Cupid angels flying around. With them, right? There's a much more physical aspect to it. Otherwise, why do you think it was necessary that Jesus had to literally become a created man? He wasn't just redeeming the spirit of humans. He was re- redeeming the creature that he made which includes their flesh and includes all of creation that was corrupted by sin right so so that is it that's the first i would say the most basic point of divergence between our understanding of biology and sense of being from those who are in this camp now i'm not saying that everybody who is claiming that they're transsexual thinks about that stuff they probably don't but the philosophy that drives this movement rests on those assumptions okay um, and it's I wanted to bring that up as well because it's probably one of the more common philosophies that has come into the church throughout the years the idea that and because of probably because of the soul language and the scriptures talking about you know the, the separation of, of spirit and matter and the Bible doesn't really do that Right, so the Bible in the Bible your body is an intrinsic part of your identity, which is why when it talks about the day of judgment sometimes, what does it say is gonna happen? It says the dead will be raised. Right. Um so if you're talking about the dead being raised, you're typically referring to like an actual physical event like Lazarus, right? Um, so, there's this understanding, scripturally speaking, that it isn't just the, the spirit-body separation, but those are one entity. Okay. okay, letter A. So, we would say these are contrary to God's will, these thoughts about I'm a, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. Um, a, remember that our chief identity is given in baptism, that we are children, children of God, heirs of heaven, right? Um, so, I didn't really think about this until it was pointed out by a seminary professor. What do you, do you walk around going, I'm a heterosexual male? Or I'm, I guess now it's cisgender male. No, you don't, right? Because that's not the central aspect of your identity. You're not defined by your sexuality. Right. And that's what point A is making. For a Christian, we're defined primarily by our identity in Christ. As children of God, but for those that are really invested in the the sexual liberation movements, what's the first thing you typically learn about them? Their sexuality, right? And that really is the root in many cases of their identity. And you can see this in the way our society treats somebody who comes out as being gay. So let's say your friend comes out to you, and they're gay. Almost automatically you have a bunch of other assumptions that you now associate with them. Because being gay means you're this sort of person. And that's not just the assumptions you're making in your own head, they've been society societally established, right? And you can see the way that they're treated by their own camp, so to speak, if they don't fall in line with some of those things, right? right? So if I'm I'm a, I'm a person who's who's pro-gay rights and pro-gay marriage, and I'm gay myself and I'm in a gay marriage, but I think that men and women, like having a husband and wife and father and mother is a better way to raise children. I'm absolutely eviscerated in the public square. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, I'm not so sure that, I'm not so sure that I agree with all of that because people who are heterosexual, right, yeah, Christians in particular, but heterosexual, regardless of, of religious background, right? Yeah. Hate gay. Oh, well, oh, They they have a real problem
1: with gay. Yeah. Right. And well, you can't deny it. Well, no, but I think so. <laughs> right. I think I've detected this in your comments before, <laughs> yeah. and I think you're overly pessimistic about other Christians' no, I motivations. So. I, I think I think there's a there's a
2: lot of evidence that that people. the the homosexuals are treated extra bad as as extra bad, right? And I and I think in what sense do you mean that? It's the worst it's it is the sin just you you talked about it before, right? Yeah. People who are Muslims and married, right? And gay people, I mean it's theological it's the same thing, except that the the gay part is what people focus on. And they don't focus on the other part. Sure. That- that's an example of what I'm talking. About. Sure, but right?
1: I like, the statement that you just made was something different. Well, and, like gay, you just you every, just made the statement that you think most Christians hate gay people. In, in every culture
2: across the world, right? Homosexuality is is a very negative thing. Right? Sure. More so than other things that are equally as bad from a spiritual standpoint, but they're treated poorly. What I'm saying is, I don't think. I think the reason for that is because heterosexuals are defined by their sexual orientation more so than I think you would, than you're saying. Oh, That's I did, I it, did not it, make the statement that heterosexual people are not defined by heterosexuality. You're saying that their the identity, identity,
1: typically they don't, their identity is not as wrapped up in that.
2: I think it is. I just don't think that it's as, it's different. But because they react so poorly, right? Because they're so, they have such a negative, being, has a, the, the homosexuality has such a negative connotation, right? And, and Is we, it we did, not supposed to? We've, but in, in, in a special way, they've been accorded a special category of sinfulness and badness sure. because, you know, somebody can be beating their wife and that's bad, but if you're gay, that's the worst, right, in, in many respects.
1: I would say that that's no longer true. I think, I think what you're saying was true at a certain point when this was becoming much more of a public issue than it had ever been before. But like, well, let me put it this way. Do you regularly see Christians like verbally or physically assaulting gay people because they're gay? Because that's, that's an outpouring of actual hatred. Absolutely.
2: I, have a question. I
1: don't see that regularly. They do.
2: They might not be beating them, but they they yeah. verbally verbally abuse them, call them names. They use it. They use things related to homosexuality as a pejorative way of insulting others, yeah. right? Calling calling if you call somebody a fag, right, or a homo or something like that. They may not be homosexual, but you're you're insulting them. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. stuff is alive and well. You know, alive sure,
1: and well. but you have, you have to be you have to be uh, discerning in the way that you treat some of that. So like if a 12 year old makes a gay joke, Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily motivated by hatred of gays, right? That could have been something they heard and they thought was funny or it's something that's been accepted in the group of friends they're in. And it can be even accepted in the group. And I'm not defending that. I'm just saying that like, it's a pretty far jump to assume that that's always motivated by hatred of those people. It's a
2: reflection of our societal
1: views about homosexuality. Well, I, I guess what I'm pushing against is, I would say that within my experience in the church, that has changed, I would say, quite significantly in the last couple of decades. That that, that I think that response was more common because it was this new public problem that the church did not do a good job of teaching its members on how to deal with. It. And so their responses were, it's not natural, it's you know, it's messed up, it's gross, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Bible does say it is those things, right? It does say that homosexuality and and other sexual immoralities are an abomination to God, right? So it's important that that we don't sort of try and dilute that to the point where it's not seen as a negative, because it should be, mm-hmm. right? But we have to make sure that we're careful to distinguish the condemnation of the sin and not the, the person that's involved in that. My brother had a similar situation where he was asked by one of his friends uh, who's gay. My, my brother and his wife are, are very social people and they're very uh, engaging and loving of those that they're friends with. So they have a lot of friends from all different types of beliefs and backgrounds. And one of his good friends was getting married and he's gay and he asked him if he would, that he would be in his wedding party. And my brother and I, t- he called me and talked about it and I encouraged him to write him a letter expressing you know, his, his sentiment. And he chose to reject to participate because he felt that, and he, and he did it in a very loving and gracious way. And the response from his friend was very good. Um, and in that situation, obviously his friend was probably a little hurt, but not in a judgmental sort of sense, but from his perspective, he was just asking my brother to participate. Um, in the case that you're talking about, I would say it's going a little further <laughs> because you're actively making something happen that we would believe is ultimately detrimental to those two, right? So the, the question, and, and this is where it gets really difficult because we, we are called to still love and support them, right? And so, like if the example is they've invited us over for dinner, should we go? The answer is yeah. So they're, they're, they're struggling with a sin like you're struggling with other sins. Like there's no reason for you to shun them or reject them. You should still love them and, and have a good relationship with them and foster that relationship. But then if it moves into the realm of like active support of unrepentant behavior that we believe is ultimately detrimental to them, it's not detrimental to me. Like, it, it doesn't affect my spiritual well-being if somebody gets married in a homosexual relationship. But part of the love that I'm called to in Christ is the same sort of love he had for me. right? He interceded when he saw that I was behaving in ways that led away from him. And so we're called to interpret these sorts of things in that same way. Which is why the distinction, we talked about this last week, is not like the particular sin, as Mike is rightly pointing out. It's the state of unrepentance. So are you celebrating and glorifying something that God calls not good? If that's the case and you want me to participate in it, whether it's about homosexuality or lying or cheating or even heterosexual things. Because I, I can tell you, I've been to a wedding. My best friend growing up, his family kind of fell away from the church and he invited me to his wedding and I was kind of guilty. I felt guilty. having haven't gone. And it wasn't for a homosexual relationship, but it was just, I felt like they were just sort of thumbing their nose at God, the way they did the ceremony. And that would be an example of a similar sort of thing, where, like, my participation was sort of an act of encouragement, especially because we had such a close relationship, to sort of treat something God intended for another purpose in your own way, which is bad. Um so and that's where I I don't like making blanket statements on ways to treat individual situations because they all have different details. So if they're just asking you to go and, and participate, like as a just an observer, you know that's also a difficult question. You know so. Let's see what time is it? Oh, it's it's noon. <laughs> okay. Um, great questions. I think was there one other person in their hand up? Is it you, Rob? Okay. Um, so, to just sort of summarize that discussion, we're called to love in a way that is going to be countercultural, particularly on issues like this, especially right now. Right? This is this is on people's minds, and just because someone accuses you of being unloving does not mean it's true. Okay. Especially if they come they're coming from a completely different system of belief. So we're called. On the authority of Scripture, to do our best to prayerfully decipher what is the faithful and right thing, not only for me, but for the person in question in these sorts of situations, which automatically means you're going to be in the mess of it in the relationships with the people, because right we talked about you can't just cut them off and shun them. That's not the response we're supposed to have either. Um, so, my encouragement to you is when you encounter those situations, I I would be more than happy to talk to you about them. And it would always be confidential, of course. But like anytime I'm, I'm addressing a question or a concern that is something that I'm not quite sure about, I have four or five people that I trust and I think are wise and I call and talk to. So I encourage you to do that in those situations. Uh, because while it's easy in the classroom to say, by the book, this is wrong, people make things messy, right? Ourselves included in that. I'm not saying other people. I'm saying people, period. And so each situation deserves its own diligence and discussion and prayerful consideration. But the clear teaching when it comes to like homosexuality and this from scripture is that it is a sin. So knowing that it is a sin and that God is a God of love who wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, our task is to use what we know from the scriptures to navigate those situations. Okay, that's all we got time for today. We actually made it through the, the points I wanted to talk about. Um, if there's anything else that you wish to bring up related to this topic uh, next week, please do write it down and bring it up. We'll certainly give it the time it needs. Let's close with a Dear Heavenly Father, you know, when we start talking about sins and dealing with particular types of sins and the situations that come up, it just makes us even more thankful for the depth of the mercy you've shown us. That when we try to do our best in these situations, we're probably going to screw up in one way or another. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness. But we also ask that you give us wisdom and guidance to see what is the best course of action in importance with your will, Not only for our well-being, but for those that we're serving and in, in relationship with With the ultimate goal always being that they come to know you, the ultimate deliverer and healer of their souls. As we learned today in our gospel reading, God loved the world, so he sent you. And that by having faith in you, which is a gift given by the Holy Spirit, we have life in your name forever. Be with us as we endeavor to bring that wondrous news to all of those in our lives. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.
3: Amen. Amen. Have
1: a great week, everyone.